Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. In this episode, we are joined by our stunning colleagues, our product managers, Michael Spiegelman, Kathy Conk, and Eddie Wu, to talk with us about what it's like to be a product manager and how engineers and product managers can work really well together. Michael and Kathy and Eddie, can you give us brief introductions of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Sure, I can start. So uh, my name is Michael Spiegelman. I lead the uh, global growth product team here at Netflix. Uh, I've been at Netflix for almost nine years, and my favorite happy hour beverage, well, my favorite beverage in general is wine, so I'm going to stick with that. Is there a favorite wine? Uh, that could take the rest of this this session, so I'll you know I'll, I'll I'll just leave it as very good wines, preferably French and Californian, but also exploring Italian. Right on. Kathy? Hi, I'm Kathy Conk. I'm a product manager on the growth team working on Michael's team here at Netflix. And my favorite drink is a virgin mojito. Today I'm drinking water. Right on. Eddie? I have to first say that I love your podcast voice, Ryan. I'm really enjoying it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this wasn't, uh, I wasn't sold this as a reason to come to this, but I would would do it just for that. It's a reason Um, to stay. (laughs) So um, my name is Eddie, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm a growth product manager. I've been in Netflix for about seven and a half years. um, And I work on the growth team on things like onboarding, uh, login and registration, um, and uh, language related behaviors and whatnot. And you get stuck working with us sometimes too. Uh, yes, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it stuck, especially if you just talk in this voice all the time. Um, my favorite happy hour beverage, what I'm drinking right now, is a Hell or High Watermelon Twenty First Amendment Brewery, which um, I was just saying when we walked in is always like a good reminder that summer is coming. Um, uh, if you've seen the most recent episode of Game of Thrones, I guess that's also another good marker. So I'm um, looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, uh, Jem, you want to give introduction? Jem Young, Senior Software Engineer at Netflix. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a Software Engineering Manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Ownership. Or ownership, owned. Any Anytime we say some sort of the ownership word, we will all take a drink. All right, let's jump right in. How would you describe the role of a product manager? Like, what what do you guys do? Do you mean other than go to meetings? Yeah. <laughs> what do we do? Yeah. I mean, I see you in meetings, but yeah. yeah. Well, what else is it as a product manager? Kathy, you want to start us off? Uh, sure. I feel like I'm going to end up with us taking a drink immediately. <laughs> Just why, think, you both, why you chose water? Yeah, I think uh, the role of a product manager is to be responsible for an area of the product, setting the strategy, the roadmap, and really ensuring that all the great ideas that the team has can filter into the prioritization and then supporting the team who does all the work to actually build things, ensure the designers, the researchers, the engineers have what they need to create all the amazing stuff that we come up with. When I t- you know, talk to candidates about it or when I think about like what I should be doing every day, I mostly think of it as uh, trying to figure out ways to make the customer experience better um, in a particular area. Area. You know, again, we kind of split up ownership of a different area, so we're not stepping into those toes all the time. But uh, when it comes down to it, that's kind of, I think, what I think of is what we do. And then there's obviously a lot of how that goes into it. Now, that's right. And I think it's, you know, sitting between, as Eddie was saying, you know, creating a great customer experience and knowing enough about, you know, that experience to really be able to, to determine what are good ideas, uh, being fluent enough in the business to figure out how does it overall impact Netflix's business and move us forward. And then, you know, understanding at least a little bit about technology so we can be conversant and talk to you all about the actual how of getting there and then be able to make those trade-off decisions between 
um, you know, how can we uh, improve the customer experience, but also get things out, you know, relatively quickly, because that's uh, can be meaningful in knowing when to make different trade-offs between how long you should invest in something uh, versus making it better versus the kind of business impact it'll have. No, I think that's really good to call it too. And I think each of you in a way touched on it is like the relationship that you have with designers and engineers in order to help get your ideas out the door. One thing too, I think that you've all really done well, like I've worked with all three of you, is also asking the right questions to better understand, like to really form an opinion. It's not just like, this is the direction we're headed. You're also like, really asking the right questions to better understand and get input from others from the teams and from the company to know what are the right things that we should be going after. As an engineer, my view of what a product manager is, is people that someone that takes the time and thinks like very, very strategically, like much further down the road. As an engineer, I care about getting a particular project out the door or like item or feature or whatever versus the product manager or someone who's like, no, we've thought about two years out where we want to be. And it's like much more strategic than everybody. So uh, you have like the more 10,000 foot view. And sometimes you have to zoom in and sometimes you have to zoom out even further. That's my view as an engineer. Yeah, I feel like when I tell people I'm already thinking about my 2020 priorities, I get like funny looks from them. But the reality <laughs> is I'm already thinking about what are we going to be working on next year because I, I need to start planning that now. Right. Which is good for us as engineers, because that means we will have work to do in <laughs> 2020. Um, by the way, what followed uh, Jim's beginning of, when I think about what a product manager does, was much kinder than I think that I wanted, uh, the following to be. So I'm glad you thought strategic and not just people who <laughs> make my life you know, very difficult. We'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the first question. It's we've, still we've early in the yeah. podcast. I, I, mean, wh- I mean, one thing that I think it's interesting about how um, like a slightly different experience I've had at Netflix versus at other companies I've worked with in, at the pa- in the past is that you know we certainly do want to do some of this road mapping and kind of getting ahead of things and having a strategic a strategic view of where we want to be, um, but also being really flexible about um, you know because our our culture of you know building the product is so experimentation focused. So there's a lot of you know inherent uncertainty in that, and there's a lot of like okay, well we think that this is a high priority and we're going to get a lot of leverage in you know investing in this particular direction and taking the product. But then if after a few tests that that is not working out, um, we might uh, shift, you know, pretty rapidly. And it's not like someone's like, oh, well, that wasn't on the roadmap. So now you can't do it. Like, I think we're all structured to be super, super flexible in terms of, you know, finding those biggest opportunities when they come up. Right. I mean, I think, as Eddie is saying, you know, one of the sort of unique, uh, I think, ways that product manager works at Netflix is... You know, in some places there is a much more top-down, down-driven strategy, and you're seeking to enable that and further that. And here we have a very experimentation-driven strategy where we can have, you know, three or four very different ideas about where our different areas and where our products can go, and we're testing into each of those and seeing which one of those, through you know, through A/B testing, proves to be really viable or not. And so, partway through, maybe decide hey, we had these three big ideas going into the year. One of them is really not working out. One of them is really paying off. So let's shift our resources and focus to the things that are paying off. And I think then we really, you know, as Eddie was mentioning, are really optimized for that flexibility and that ability to pivot very quickly and go after that thing that's working out. Um, and then we may rethink the thing that wasn't working out and try another stab at it, but we're not locked into, well, let's try and make this work or here's what we really set out for the year um, or here's we committed to do this in Q3, so we're going to do it in Q3. It's like, it's we really kind of read the results of this experimentation um, and follow where that is telling us to go. Yeah, I think even on from the engineering perspective that I've always really respected and enjoyed for and for the rest of our team, like 
we're, we're along for the ride. It's not just, hey, we had this roadmap and now you're telling us to pivot. It's really like we're seeing these tests and, and really understanding how the metrics are playing out and saying, yeah, this makes sense. We need to pivot or no, we need to double down on this area. And I think that's really useful too, is it's like we feel more like a partner instead of like, here's a spec, go build it, mm-hmm. which has always been good. Uh, I'd be interested to know, this is more of an actual question, not of the discussion, is uh, <laughs> more of hearing more about what your path to becoming a, man- or a product manager was, because you can kind of come at it from all different directions. So I'm interested to hear all three of your perspectives. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I would say I probably have, I'm trying to remember, I probably have one of the more traditional paths out of the people who are here. So um, I went to college, I studied computer science, it was here in the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, when I graduated, it was 2004. And so I, it seemed like probably roughly 70% of my classmates were going to Google, which had, you know, been founded a couple of years before that at the time. Um, and so, you know, um, I knew that I wanted to work in technology, I had a pretty good sense of, you know, the what a software engineer does like during the day. I mean, it's obviously very different, you know, studying, you know, writing code in school versus writing code at a company. But at the end of the day, you're building something like, you know, what you're responsible responsible for. Um, I had no idea what the hell like a marketing manager or product manager did like all, all day. And I was like, well, these are people who have jobs too. So maybe I should try to figure out, figure that out. Um, you know, at, if you can remember, you know, late mid 2000s in Silicon Valley, everyone wants to do a startup. Um, and so part of my thought process was, you know, well, I should understand kind of more of these business things if I ever want to do anything like that. Um, and so I ended up taking a position uh, at a company called Intuit and make um, QuickBooks, uh, personal finance software, Mint, TurboTax, etc. Um, and it was actually in a rotational program. So uh, it was a two-year program and we did six-month rotations through a bunch of different functions. So it included like engineering, marketing, PM, corporate strategy. Um, so it gave me kind of a really good like overview of kind of like living the life of, you know, all these different roles and then ended up um, out of those. I liked product management the best and I did it. Um, well, I should mention that the first three months we were in that program, we actually, the first thing was support. So we actually, um, all, yeah, we also, we all went down to the Tucson call center um, and uh, literally, you know, took training on QuickBooks small business software support and like manned the phones for, you know, six weeks or so and really uh, felt customer pain, I would say. Um so, uh, so, and then before we came back up to, you know, um, the Bay Area and then kind of had our corporate jobs there. So that was kind of how I got started in it. Right on. I feel like maybe we need to do this as onboarding is making all Netflix employees go to the uh, customer service and spend time on the phone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we used to do that, I think, like yeah. way back. Um, but, you know, now that we're bigger, it's not as common. But we do, you know, definitely encourage people to kind of cycle through. Um, and I think we have definitely, uh, we used to have mechanisms where you could literally just like listen to calls and stuff like from here. Um and I mean, theoretically, I mean, we have like chat support and stuff like we could set up a program where employees could just, you know, take support contacts and see. Feel the pain. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Kathy, how about yourself? So I came from a marketing background prior to coming to Netflix. Uh, my degree was in history. Um, my first job, I worked for Geico and I actually also spent time in a call center uh, taking reports of claims from people who called in was my first job because they hired me and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. (laughs) And (laughs) through uh, several different job changes, I ended up working in email marketing and it, it worked out nicely for me because it's the 
probably the part of marketing, d- digital marketing, and then even email marketing in particular, that is the most experimentation driven, most data driven, most A-B test driven. So I had a lot of that experience um, when I came to Netflix. And I was actually hired at Netflix into marketing to be an email marketing manager. And then about a month and a half later, they did a huge reorganization. And I got moved into product. And so then became a product manager and then kind of started to learn how product worked at Netflix, how it was different than some of the things that I had done and worked on at, uh, you know, kind of from a marketing perspective. I think the data and experimentation piece of it was similar. I think the scalability, uh, repeatability, global global piece of it was a little bit different. Very cool. Michael. Uh, so I'm also more on the non-traditional side. Uh, so I when I graduated, my degree was in international relations, and I thought I'd be in like the foreign service or something <laughs> like that. Uh, and then I ended up, you know, but that wasn't like an immediate job option when I was a <laughs> freshly graduated uh, undergrad. And so I ended up getting a job in management consulting, but working with a lot of public sector organizations as a way of fulfilling my interest in um, in government and how it worked. And I did that for a few years. And this was like in the late 90s. And, you know, a lot of internet tech was getting going, but I had no background in technology, nothing whatsoever. I was not the kid who like built computers in the garage or anything like that. It was like probably was like quite the opposite. Um, But a colleague of mine from consulting had gone into this internet consulting company and she hired me into that in 2000 at a time when like I didn't have any experience in the internet, but like nobody really did. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that much of a barrier. (laughs) And so I was, you know, doing internet strategy consulting and then the dot com bust, that company fell apart. And then with some colleagues, we started our own uh, kind of website design and development company. And did that for a couple of years. And that's kind of when I started doing a sort of quasi PM role because someone needed to figure out like what we were building for clients. Uh, and also as a note of consistency, I did a, I didn't work in a call center, but I did a project that was about <laughs> revamping how a call center works. So I do have some call center tie. <laughs> and then, um, after a couple of years of doing that, you know, we sort of built up the business, but then for a couple of reasons started to fall apart. And so we decided to split up and I got high through a friend. I got hired into, uh, Yahoo to be a product manager in the music group. And so that was my entree into mu- into product management. And he essentially asked me, like, would you want to be a product manager? And I'm like, well, I have no idea what that is, but it sounds like something I could probably figure out. <laughs> and, and so I, yeah, I spent six and a half years at Yahoo before, as in, in, the, in the product role before getting hired into Netflix. So it sounds like there's like a requirement you have to be at some sort of call center or some <laughs> kind of call center in order to be Being in a call center at some point. But it is a good way to ground yourself in what really those customer pain point issues and to realize that, you know, a lot of the customer service representatives have some of the the toughest and, you know, jobs around. Each of you have worked on various products, and I'm interested to know what's needed to create a successful product. Like, what what do you think about as a product manager that needs to be created for a successful product? Um, I mean, I think one of the things, I mean, just, you know, we were joking about it, but, um, you know, I think maybe one of the themes around the call center is that, like, it does help you get a deep understanding of customers. And I think I always think of that as the the foundation of everything that we do is trying to understand customers and customer needs as deeply as we can, um, so that we can then, you know, leverage those to generate ideas about what's going to drive the business forward and how to, you know, do something that's going to make customers happier and more likely to retain with Netflix and or, you know, any other product that you would work on. So I would say that that's probably where I would start with. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's about the first thing is, are you building something that is solving a customer need or a customer problem? Uh, and that that's where you've got to start. I mean, whether you're if you're creating a startup, a new business, it's like, is the business that you're creating solving for a customer need or problem? And then if you're optimizing an existing business, what are the pain points customers have or the opportunities to, to fulfill a need? Uh, and it's also digging into not what customers say they need, but what they actually need, which can, you know, that's kind a of hard one to figure out. It too. can be very hard. So it's kind of how how you can read between the lines, work with a great research partner to really understand um, what they need, not what they say. Yeah. And I think similar to what Kathy and Eddie were saying, it's, you know, I think of it from the sort of Clayton Christensen perspective of, you know, what job is a customer hiring your product to do? And how can you do that really well? And what do they really, really, really need from you versus, again, what do people say or what do people feel or how do they express it? Um, and how do you get to like the bottom of the essence of what that problem is and then figure out a way you can you can solve that as best as possible? Um, and I think for us, it's it's being able to balance, you know, understanding that kind of having that customer empathy, um, but also being able to translate it as something that's like really workable. And sometimes with people, how people are expressing something isn't exactly always how you need to solve the problem, but you need to like be able to kind of get into the people's shoes and see it from their perspectives and then translate it into maybe several different ways you could solve that problem and figure out which one is the best at actually doing it. Also sounds like there's a lot of ownership. <laughs> it is midway through, and we had studiously <laughs> somehow avoided that. Yeah, I had to throw that one in there. <laughs> in my experience, what I've seen people create successful and unsuccessful products is about balancing priorities. Uh, Kathy, you said you have to know, and I think you all touched on it, it's like you have to know how to distill what people are saying from mm -hmm. what they actually want. And Silicon Valley is littered with plenty of examples of great ideas that were just either executed poorly or executed too late or uh, feature creep where it's like, oh, but if you had this one feature, we would definitely buy your product. <laughs> and then the engineers all shift. And I've seen that so many times. So what I think about building a successful product, just juggling, juggling priorities and knowing like, well, engineering is like, yeah, we're sort of happy. There's some bugs. You're like, cool. Uh, design's like, yeah, it's not as beautiful as we'd like. You're like, cool. And then like, yeah. get out the door, like ship it. That's the right state you want to be. And when everybody's happy, then like, it's probably. Different. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, I think to your point too, is like the prioritization is super important. It's like being ruthless on like, what are you focused on? Cause I've, I've definitely worked at companies where it was like this broad idea or this massive feature that everyone just can continue down that path that like, we should just keep working on this because it was like the sunk cost when really there's probably other valuable priorities or something that was more impactful that we should be going after. That sunk cost just continued to creep and creep and creep. Someone probably should have said, we need to reprioritize and rethink along those lines as well. I mean, you know, those, the, those kind of things are fairly endemic because it's easy you know, to want to perfectly solve the problem and it's mm -hmm. easy to, to keep layering things onto it. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that we try and have here and it's always attention in doing it is a lot of focus and um, and try and do, you know, something really well versus doing many things in a, in a sort of more half-assed way. Uh, it's a continual challenge because there are always lots of opportunities and we're always pulled in a lot of different directions. But, you know, that that prioritization is crucial around like, what's the one thing we really want people to be able to do right now? And how do we spend the right amount of time on getting a concept to be really right and getting the solution to be really, really, uh, really right? Um, you know, either before we're executing it or while we're going through it and be able to say like, no, that doesn't feel quite right. This is the better way of solving it. And so getting to that point. And at the same time, as Jen mentioned, there's, so, there's always the 
you know, sometimes better is the enemy of good enough. And if you're really trying to solve a customer problem, you know, having something that is like, you know, that is amazing and wonderful, but is not getting out for a year, it doesn't really solve anybody's problem. And have, getting something out that starts to solve that problem, even if it's not fully doing everything you want, uh, can be a lot more valuable. Also, because you can kind of learn as you go. Because I know like with ours, exactly. you know, at Netflix, A-B testing is what we're doing is you can on- mm-hmm. iterate on it. Maybe you wouldn't, you thought it was the best approach to go build this perfect feature, but it really wasn't. And, and so if you incrementally get there, it's like you might pivot a little bit. And so I think that's really important as well to, to really help build a better product. Yeah. And I think it's also like better or best, I think is also like very context dependent, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's important for everyone to understand is that like, it's not always the same, right? And so, you know, the product that you want to build, that's like, you know, like uh, the best product for software engineers who live in Silicon Valley is probably not the best product for, you know, um, people, you know, a mainstream audience that lives in, you know, Sacramento or Oklahoma or whatever. And so it's, it's helpful to kind of understand the the your customer base right and where you think the growth is going to come from so you make sure that you want to build for that base right like you know linux is a great operating system for <laughs> lots of people but not for uh, not for everyone right not um, for the masses <laughs> yeah exactly um, we have the noisiest group online too yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, when's yeah, the linux version it. coming yeah. oh yeah like, <laughs> well, and i think that you know even talking to, we talked about like qualitative research where you know talking with customers and everything is you, you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt too you know to that point is like if you went and read all the Linux comments and requests for features and why aren't you doing this, like that could really distract from the core reason or what you're trying to achieve in the business. So I think even as product managers, I'm sure you often hear a lot of great ideas Mm -hmm. and it's really about how do you focus and keep focus on the things that we should be going after. So I think that that's another area where I think that helps create a better product too. So I'm interested as, you know, this is an engineering podcast is, uh, (laughs) you know, I want to know like product managers like from engineers and designers when you're working with us, what's that relationship look like? What do you want to see from us to be great engineers? I mean, considering we're sitting with two engineers (laughs) on the engineering floor, we're going to with lots of people. You better watch what you say. (laughs) We better, uh, we better be careful about how we approach this. Yeah, well, you should pick up your drinks because I'm about to say ownership like about a billion times. Um, so, but in seriousness, I think that is, um, you know, probably the number one thing that like I think helps differentiate kind of a good engineer from a great engineer that, that we work with. And fortunately, at uh, Netflix, we have a lot of great engineers, um, you know. running a project is complicated, right? And I think um, at Netflix, we don't really have too many uh, project managers, right? Like people whose jobs is mostly to uh, keep a project on schedule. We consider that to be part of, you know, some of kind of everyone's job that's on the that's working on a particular project um and so certainly the product manager you know we have some you know oversight over that but then you know we it's really much less efficient for us to keep track of all the dependencies you know you know we're obviously as you guys know a very service oriented team so there's a lot of different uh you know dev, dev teams that are involved in any any given project you know ranging from i mean at 
at least probably two for anything and then up to you know 20 right is probably kind of like sometimes some of these things have pretty deep effects um and uh you know tracking all these dependencies figuring out like when something will be done and things like that like there's just a big difference between an engineer that's like oh well i asked for something from this other team or i need them to build an endpoint for me um i already asked for it they said it'd be done next week and then it hasn't really come come in but you know i'll just either wait for the project manager to go ask them about it or wait till the next team meeting or someone who like goes to that team and is like hey i thought i was going to have this by tuesday it's now thursday you know where is it or even better it's like hey are you still on track to have this on tuesday so i have it because if you think about it it's like on 15 different if it's a 15 person team across different teams every one of those days right even if things are one day delayed now you're two weeks behind what you thought you were going to be um and not in a productive way either right just in a kind of coordination way and so i think that mindset of like hey i'm trying to get this done with as high quality and as fast as i can and everyone ha on the team having that i think makes a big difference that you it's you know hard to um match that even if you have the best project management in the world. I think in addition to that, the thing that I really love from an engineer is uh, their enthusiasm for the customer experience in particular it, you know, it's going to be different for all different kinds of en uh, engineers, but we're primarily working with front end engineers and working on a customer experience. And so engineers who are super excited about what is that customer problem, how they're helping to solve it, excited about the A-B test and the experimentation that we're doing to make it an even better experience for our members and our prospective members uh, really helps the relationship because it, it makes them, uh, the engineer and the PM feel more like a team kind of moving towards the same objective, that it's not just about uh, kind of the code and the functionality, but it's about, you know, the end user at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, one of the first, you know, meetings that I had when I joined Netflix, I was, you know, coming up with an idea and we were like kind of pitching it to the you know, presenting to the engineering team that um, that was going to be involved, and like just the level of questions that people asked about the, what's the rationale, you know, asked about the details. Is it really the best way of getting to it? We're kind of like poking on things in a way that showed that they really cared about what the ultimate experience was. They weren't just going to take you know my word for it about like here's what we should be doing. I think showed that kind of level of involvement and passion about it. So, like Kathy and Yeti were saying, that sort of um, that involvement. That sense of responsibility. Oh, just avoid it. Just do it. Act like a. I'll just say it. Owner uh -huh. cheers. Cheers. is uh, is I think pretty huge, um, and I think we love it. Not just when people are able to make our ideas better or be able to 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 figure out how to make them uh, be executed better, but also when they're coming up with it, with ideas on their own. And like Gem and I have worked together. You know, over the past couple of years, and you know, at one point I remember checking in with Jem on a project. He was like, "Oh yeah," he's like, "That I got." What I'm really interested in next is this idea I have for the next <laughs> test that we could do. And I was like, "Okay, that sounds is, like me." Right, this is like, great. my job here is done. I got. I've not. I, now I have the engineers coming up with the idea. Like I'm good. So, but seeing that kind of you know it just shows a level of enthusiasm, which is like, okay, yeah, like I'm excited about what we're doing right now. But it's like the next step after that that I'm even you know mm -hmm. more excited about what we can do it and how do we build on that to do something something, um, you know, even more interesting. Yeah, I think I would be pretty terrified if my job was I was the only one that came up with any ideas <laughs> right. ever. And then everyone just worked on what I came up with because I'm just one person and everyone has great ideas. And so I think it helps that we're a culture that the PMs are open to the ideas and then that encourages the engineers to come up with them, bring them to us and then kind of add that as part of a test that we were planning or even 
pull something into a brand new test that was kind of just from an idea from an engineer or a designer or someone else on the team. That's right. And as we were saying, you know, our job is to really prioritize, but it's not to be the sole, you know, creator of the ideas. And so we're really curating and saying some of the ideas may be ours, some come from the design team, some from the engineering team, some from analysts, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, having some sense of like, okay, well, what do we think the probability of success of this idea times the possible impact would it have and then be able to come with some sense of what's the most important thing for us to be going after now or next right on so i think we should flip the table and say <laughs> what, what do engineers expect from product management <laughs> now all right yeah. yeah jim what do you think not, not much <laughs> I don't, the bar's pretty low for everybody in this room i've learned to have low expectations yeah. <laughs> not be too disappointed uh, I would say the the best way I could say engineers, uh, me as an engineer, like work with a product manager is uh, an anecdote. It's one of my favorite stories. It's uh, my interview from Netflix. Michael was actually the last person on my panel. And he said, well, Jim, how do you balance perfect design and perfect engineering? And I'm like, uh. <laughs> right at the end of the day. Oh, it was the last one. I'm like, oh, this is like one of these tricky Netflix questions. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in the end, you can't. And he just kind of nodded. But I'm like, he gets it. Like, <laughs> they, and that's what I expect from product managers, like someone who understands design is never going to be perfect, engineering is never going to be perfect. But the, you understand like a little bit of each and you know how to like balance that out. And like, that's what I consider a successful relationship with the product manager. I mean, I completely agree with that. And then also just, I think I heard even from the product manager side of how you like to have engineers helping with ideas or sharing or being mm -hmm. passionate about that. But I think a lot of that comes from a good product manager is getting people bought into that too, is not just saying, okay, this is what we're doing. And then he, like, don't ask questions. We're going forward mm -hmm. with this. I think a lot of it is really like coming to people and saying like, how do you feel about this idea? And like, this is what we're thinking and, and really sharing the background business cases that of like why we're trying to achieve this. I feel like that ends up helping really spark people's ideas, but also help them to be more enthusiastic about what they're working on. And to me, as an engineer, I want to be working on something impactful. I don't want to work on something that a feature that 10 people use, like that just kind of seems like a miss. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. really excite me. I want to solve a problem that our customers are happy with. And so I think it, it really goes both ways. I think both of what the product manager is saying and even what Gem and I are saying is that like there there is this relationship between the two that uh, it's very collaborative. Um, I think I, it breaks down when it's, hey, here, I'm the PM. I'm going to go give my de uh, design and engineers a spec. You go build it yeah. and just follow it to a T. I think that's where it starts to break down. And I don't think we build as great of a product at the end of the day um, when it's just one person's idea. Yeah. And I think, you know, here we try and invest in a lot of context for it. You know, why are we doing what we're doing? Um, and having people, you know, I think be able to participate in, in knowing all that and having the same level of information that we do about, you know, the business, what's going on globally, what's going on across all the different um, customers that, that Netflix serves throughout the world. And so that, you know, you see why we're going there, but also you can challenge us if you think it's not the best way to go in that direction and ask us, well, why are we doing this? Or have we thought of something else? Um, because we all are, if we're all pointed in the same direction, then we're at least all talking about the same things and talking about the same objectives and figuring out how to get there. And so we can have really productive conversations around like, okay, is this the best way to do it? Is this the best idea that, that we're going after next? What else should we, should we be considering, et cetera. And I think, you know, it's when people are not open to, to critiques, you know, it often comes from a place of insecurity and you have to be, you know, secure that, 
that those challenges are about making the product better, making the experience better, making the concept better. They're not about you. And so, and that, that is your, everybody's overall objective. Um, and so if you have confidence in that, then you don't have to worry about like, you know, trying to be defensive about the, the fact that it's your idea that, that that's better. Um, but, you know, you can have that productive discussion and get to what you think actually is, is best for the overall, you know, customers that we're trying to serve. Okay, one lesson I just took away is I should do more nod silently. Um, yeah. <laughs> so people think that I'm much wiser. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good tactic to bust out more yeah. often. Yeah. It, it also doesn't show up as well on a podcast. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we just have to have Ryan narrated his best podcaster voice. Yeah, nodding right now. Right. I, I need to Eddie work on nodding. that. Eddie, Eddie nods wisely. Ooh, narration. Yeah, I like this. Mm. Jen nods very wisely. <laughs> it's the beard. Scott yeah. scratches the beard. Right. Yeah. I also with product manager, I'd, I'd say my unsuccessful relationships have been product managers who aren't thorough. So if I ask a question about like, I don't know, hey, Eddie, what are our growth prospects, prospects in Africa given like the increased, I don't know, churn rate because of something. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't really know. That like does not instill a lot of confidence <laughs> in me. Uh -huh. That like I'm working overtime on a weekend to build this feature. That like we don't actually know where we're going. Right. So those have been my most unsuccessful relationships. The one where they're like, I don't know, Jim, what do you think? And it's like that that back and forth and not the defensive like because I said so mm -hmm. is like a mm -hmm. recipe for disaster every single time. Uh, but yeah, I guess at the end of the day, it's just like respect against yeah. for all 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 parties. Yeah, the respect and collaboration. And ownership. So each of you have worked at various companies as maybe in some form of a PM. And we've talked a lot about Netflix. Like what, what varies between a PM role at some uh, another company versus Netflix? Uh, I think there are a couple of things. One, as we've been referencing throughout this conversation, is really the heavy focus on A-B testing. You know, I think a lot of companies in the Valley do A-B testing uh, we're, I think, at the at the high end of really embracing that as a discipline and thinking about probably 95% of what we do as a product organization is an A-B test with the intent of improving the customer experience. And so it drives a lot of how you think about things. And I think we apply a lot of the scientific method towards product management, which is you're coming up with an idea, you're turning it to a hypothesis, whereas you know, you're thinking, okay, if I change this thing, it'll produce this change in consumer behavior that we can then view through this metric. And it becomes something very observable and objective as possible about whether you're solving that that customer problem. And so I think that's really a hallmark of how we think about things. And we're very rigorous about that hypothesis development process, about coming up, you know, and shaping that idea into something that's testable and something where we can actually measure the impact. Um, and then very structured about how do we form an idea into different cells you know, in each case, we're changing one variable at a time, you know, one part of the customer experience at a time, and then seeing which of those things actually has an impact on, on the experience. And we want to get to the smallest possible change for the largest possible impact we can get. And so things that don't really have material effect or are fairly neutral, we don't want to roll those out just because we like it, you know, we want it to actually be something that changes our customer behavior. So I think you know, that kind of uh, A-B testing approach and really an experimentation-driven approach um, to product management is, is really key. And we're willing to, um, you know, take some short-term hits in order for us to find what's the thing that actually benefits our customers. And, you know, and, and we sort of reward people who are interested in learning along the way and can embrace both successes and failures and learn from what those failures are as an opportunity towards iterating on that experience. And ultimately, because we only roll out the things that, that work, you know, any failure, as long as you take it the right way, is just an opportunity to learn because it's not like you're actually 
actually tanking the customer experience. We're just rolling out the good things. And so it involves a lot of learning along the way. And I think also embracing that learning is a big part of Netflix. Um, and then I think in terms of, of team structure, uh, you know, when I, when I talk to candidates for product management here, uh, I think one of the things that's often quite surprising is that our total, um, you know, number of consumer focused product managers that we have at Netflix is only around 20 people. And so we tend to hire senior experienced people. We tend to give people a lot of autonomy, um, a lot of ability to go after the things they want, a wide area of responsibility. And then instead of having a lot of product managers who might be writing different specs or might have it be owning small parts of it, you know, we have that broad ownership and then an ability to work with uh, their design and engineering partners to make things happen. And I think we really believe in that virtue of like a cohesive team um, with a singular captain to try and, you know, help get it there. Uh, and I think that tends to be very different as like the ratio of PMs to the organization as a whole um, is a very small number of PMs relative to the number of designers and engineers engineers they work with. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that also calls back, I think, to the notion of, um, you know, not proliferating the number of features or whatever, because that are, that really enforces discipline right because you only have so many hours in the day to work on things and so then you know if you have like a hundred pms you can work on like pretty small things because you know that's what you need to do um uh but you know with kind of our limited bandwidth it's really about picking the most important things so can i ask what is project man or product management like at say a 40 person company so it's easier to say you know we do a b testing but when you can't and you're like i'm a startup i'm leading a team we've got to deliver this product or we're literally going to fail and we'll all be out of jobs. Like what, what would that be like? Or what is it like? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of what happens in, in many companies is that often small companies is often, you know, first the founder is, you know, is sort of in essence, the product leader, you know, they've got this vision that they're trying to see if it works and you don't have the advantage of EB testing and scale like we do. So you have to say like, all right, we're just going to take us bet on building something and let's see where that goes and then test a the market for it. Um, and then, you know, normally as the company grows, they'll hire like the first head of product once like the CEO, you know, once there's a, like a more formal CEO, the founder is becoming the CEO or it gets out of that very initial beta stage where we need someone who can actually build out the product feature set and then scale it. And so there's, you know, a lot of the same thought process around, you know, customer empathy and understanding and balancing business and customer and technology come up. But, you know, you, you're, yeah, you're not testing something because you don't really have a market for it. And so you need to figure out other ways to get those signals. Um, but I think even when, you know, when Netflix was really, you know, a, a much newer uh, company, you know, our teams used to like take prototypes to like a mall and flag people down and get them to go through it just as a way of getting feedback. So I think even if you're not, don't have that level of scale or sophistication, you know, building in the experimentation mindset and they might be wrong and figuring out, okay, well, how do we put something out there? How do we get some level of feedback? How do we iterate based on that? And building those cycles, I think that's like a really important discipline to have from the get-go. Yeah, I've actually made that joke of just like going to like Starbucks or something like yeah. that. I'll buy you coffee if you'll look at this. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's a good way to get some quick feedback. Right. So uh, before we go into picks, I'm interested. What is one thing you wish people knew about product management? 
I wish that they knew it existed. I, <laughs> I'm a hundred percent sure that my dad still thinks I'm a project manager, <laughs> and that I can—I've just given up on convincing if him it makes otherwise. You feel any better? I don't think my parents know what I do. Yeah, they, they no <laughs> something with computers. Yeah. It's like <laughs> something with computers. I think yeah. I've been called the designer. I designed yeah. the, the, yeah. the interface, which they're probably not using that word. So, right? Yeah. Do any of our parents know what we do? Yeah. <laughs> probably not. I think more seriously, I think the one thing, and I, I kind of mentioned uh, this a little bit earlier is kind of product managers are not gods or people who have all the answers. We're people who are helping solve customer problems by bringing the entire team together and orienting us towards that goal. Um, and so we're not people to be intimidated by and we're not people who are the the you know lone genius driving something in the company. We're, we're just all working towards the same goal. We just have a different role to play in that team. Yeah, um, I guess one thing that um, you know comes up every so often is you know I'll have uh, you know software engineers or other people kind of coming and be like, hey, like what what would it take for me to become a product manager? Um, and I think a lot of times there's like a perception of like, well, that's like a promotion or something like that, right? And it's mm -hmm. not necessarily right. It's a different role. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, like not to discourage it, like I think a lot of people would be great product managers, but I think you have to think explicitly about like what you want and don't want out of your career. Right, like if you want a job where it is very difficult to know whether you're right, <laughs> um, in most cases, I mean it's a little bit better because we do a lot of testing. Um, then you know, product managers like that is a, you have to be pretty comfortable with uncertainty. Um, versus you know, a software engineer at the end of the day, it's like you delivered or you didn't deliver it, and you can kind of know like you know you wrote this and you built this or did it work or did it not work. Um, a lot of times, you know, we're making decisions where we're not really sure whether it's worked or not, or you know did we do a good job of helping the team, you know, find the most innovative idea and things like that. Um, and so, you know, again, like I love the job, but I think it's like, it's something that we should think that people should think of as like, this is a specific role um, and not as like, oh, this is like, you know, something I should aspire because it's like more, um, prestigious in some way yeah I, I i do think it's often hard to exactly articulate what you do and my family thinks <laughs> other like than this. being in meetings right, right. <laughs> go, basically like you go to meetings and everyone's at off you go to an off-site which is sort of a meeting that's outside you write a lot of docs right that's all exactly. I know. Yes. there is writing Memos. docs too right and sometimes we read things also you know so all that does not necessarily add up to a job in many people's minds um but yeah, I mean, similar to what Eddie and, and Kathy said, I think uh, you have to, it's that notion of dealing with ambiguity and being comfortable with, with ambiguity. You know, you're essentially choosing from an almost like infinite array of things you could possibly be doing to advance the experience forward. And where there's lots of different combinations and, and possibilities and where you have a lot of uncertainty, um, uh, you know, as, as, as we we're saying about what the right path forward is and what's the effect of that going to be. And so I think just knowing that you have to live in that kind of world of, of ambiguity and gray area a lot, and you do get these signals back, like we do A-B testing, or when you launch a product to the market, you kind of start to find the fit. But it can be a lot of time before you find out if you're, if you're right or wrong. Uh, and so you have to be comfortable and confident in making those decisions and helping to move a team forward. And sometimes, like we're saying, making those trade-offs, not knowing if you did the right thing or not. And maybe, you know, you made that trade-off where you decided to cut corners on the design to get the engineering out faster. But maybe that was the wrong thing because those things you cut from the design were actually really crucial to solving the experience. Um, or vice versa, you decided to invest a lot more time in building a higher you know, quality version of the product because you thought that was important, but maybe you get to the end of it and you just spent six months building something that people don't care about. And so you you have to be sort of comfortable with the fact that you're not always going to be right and you're often going to be in that gray area that'll sometimes be illuminated by results and signals back that allow you to refine your thinking. 
but you know you won't know until you get to you know a different stage in the journey about whether that was a good investment or a good decision or not. Well, that actually explains a lot about product management. <laughs> 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 so at the end of each episode, we like to share picks of anything that we find interesting that we want to share with our listeners. Jem, you want to start it off? Uh, what kind of picks do you have for our listeners today? Oh uh, yeah, I have three picks. Uh, my first one is. One of my favorite algorithms, it's the Fast Fourier Transform. Uh, it's one of the most powerful algorithms we know. We use it all the time. But essentially, it's uh, it takes a waveform and breaks it down into its component waveforms, which sounds really dumb. But the equivalent is taking a can of paint and then breaking it into its subsequent colors. And like the power of that is like we use it for voice UI. We use it for like... Uh, if you're trying to recognize a song by ID, like, you know, you play a song and it like picks it up, it, that's a fast forward transform. It's literally the algorithm that drives like so many things around us. And it's really, really powerful. It's, it's great to learn about if you don't never heard of it. Uh, my second one, go ahead and judge me. I'll, I'll wait. That is, ju- that was judgment. That was a lot of judgment is, um, Vitae ramen. It's a ramen that is a, um, it is 500 calorie ramen. So it's like Whoa. nutritionally balanced ramen. So theoretically, you're supposed to be able to eat four of these a day and it's nutritionally complete and it's ramen. I bought some. Go ahead and judge me. Uh, was good? It was okay. Okay. It, I don't know if I'd want to eat it four times a day, but I do eat a lot of ramen and I'm like, well, I probably should. If I'm going to eat ramen, it should be healthier. I'm just going to pretend that ramen is healthy. Yeah. <laughs> but this is technically healthy. Is that I don't, just soup? Soup is healthy. Yeah, soup is yeah, healthy. Yeah, it is. But it's Silicon Valley soup. Oh. So it was, it was expensive. So. Uh, I, will, I will bring some in if everybody wants to sample yeah, some. Let's, yeah. really I, if you have us ramen. back, we can all have healthy ramen. <laughs> ramen happy hour. Yeah. yeah. Healthy yeah. ramen happy hour. My last one is... Um, it's it's a funny one. So when you think the Silicon Valley, <laughs> what was the pr- the previous one did not fall into that? Category. It was it was mildly humorous. Okay, it's actually right, funny. Yeah. Uh, so when you think of you know the dot com boom and busts of the early two thousands that Michael you referenced, uh, what do you think of? What's what's the thing you think of? Is there like a website or domain? Pets dot com. Pets dot com. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, a website that sells pet supplies was like indicative of. This is the the IPO uh, boom and bust of Silicon Valley. So um, this company just filed for an IPO. It is Chewy.com. Mm. Mm. Oh, I, I'm a big Chewy user. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and what do they do? They sell pet supplies yeah. on the internet. So are we are we the next uh, bust of Silicon Valley? I don't know. I just think it's hilarious. People love their pets. They I think do. that's like big business. I don't see a problem there. That's what they said about pets.com too, <laughs> right before the end. I, I, I do remember a friend of mine in the last .com you know, bust and he was like, I, I think the writing was on the wall when my company announced a strategic partnership with ilovecats.com. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah. Well, it calls back. It's like sometimes ideas is like the time is not there, right? I mean, right. You think about. I mean, the other big one that people talk about from the dot com boom is Webvan, Web right? Which is grocery delivery. It's yeah. like how many grocery delivery <laughs> companies we have now, right? <laughs> All right, Michael, where do you Actually, have? For I want to hear Kathy's pick. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we might need the most amount of time for this. Well, it's. Uh, I was trying to narrow down to just two, but then Jem did three, so now I'm going to do three. <laughs> so good. my you're first, not limited. My first is semi work related, which is a leadership book I read recently called Everybody Matters: The Extraordinary Power of Caring for your people like family. Um, so it's interesting because at Netflix, we talk about being a sports team, not a family. But I was quite surprised at how much of what in, is in this book aligns with the Netflix culture, I think largely in terms of the freedom and responsibility, uh, kind of giving people ownership of their, <laughs> well of their jobs and uh, kind well of treating them with respect. Um, 
so that was really enjoyable. And I highly recommend that if you're interested in a look at a unique leadership culture and how to treat people um, kind of with respect and, and dignity. The other one is a fictional book called Severance, uh, which I read earlier this year. It is a po- apocalyptic novel, which I love. I can't get enough of those. Um, so it's a, a mix of a millennial love story, an office satire, an, a zombie apocalypse. So hopefully that's intriguing enough. Wow. Um, um, so that's Severance. <laughs> and then my last one is The OA, which is uh, a Netflix TV series. We just launched season two recently. And I haven't actually watched season two yet, but I rewatched season one um, over this past like week and a half. And it reminded me how much I loved that show. So uh, I'm looking forward I'm to getting into season two. I'm going to tell you that it's actually even better. That's what I, I've I heard. I keep hearing that, that There's it got more better. more depth to it. So yeah. I love it. Just drive those streaming hours. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm going to go back and listen to all of our episodes. <laughs> Sometimes Gem and I are literally picking a Netflix original. Probably because we watch too much TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I disagree on the OA, though. That is- yeah, that's true. Oh. We, it's we, definitely we'll controversial. Well, Con- you, I think you either love it or you hate it. Yeah. Eddie? Uh, yeah, all right. I'll do, I'll do three. Um, was, when, you, when you first told me that there's pick things in me there, I was like, I was nervous because I typically have very, very mainstream tastes. And so it's like you feel like you're not like that clever if you're just like, oh, you guys should all go watch the Avengers Endgame. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I have it's, only, it's only the most popular movie in the history of, of the world. So I'm not going to do that. But I, so I have three. Um, one of them in the movie space is uh, so recently for work, I was um, doing an immersion in Mumbai, India for two months. And so while so we were living there we brought a small team uh ui engineering and um other design other functions Which actually um, mars a regular panelist was yeah that's right that's right team. so if you haven't heard mars recently that's you know where she was and what it, while we were there we watched a movie called gully boy um which is a um indian movie it's hindi original language but it is available now with subtitles unfortunately on a competitive streaming service um in the u.s uh but it's you know i I thought it was great it's a it's basically like um the plot of it is a little bit similar to eight mile um so it's about like a hip-hop um a guy who's like really into hip-hop and like comes from kind of the slums of mumbai um and i thought it was i mean it was interesting because like obviously the music is great but also just the universality of that story of like you know the someone coming like out of you know poverty and not having anything and then like um having like a creative dream and being able to live live by it um yeah and really well executed so i'd recommend that um let's see uh i wanted to so one of my favorite beers not the hell or high watermelon i'm drinking now is uh is another beer which is also a summary beer called campfire stout so if you guys Mm, have never tried campfire stout it is a really good stout it literally tastes like marshmallows um and so it's uh very drinkable although somewhat heavy um i think it's uh i think what's the strangely high water maybe um something water i think it's high water ryan we had that at outside lands yeah last we have and there. i can't remember mm. who makes yeah it yeah anyway yeah. really good definitely check it out and then my third recommendation i th- uh i'll do a book so i'll seem smarter um so <laughs> so i read mostly you know sci-fi fantasy books but i also have this one kind of niche where i like to read uh non-fiction books about stuff that seems that seems really uninteresting so i remember my friends, <laughs> used, to, my friends really used, selling this. Yeah, my friends <laughs> used to make fun of me a lot because i was like yeah it's like i'm reading this book it's about 
Cod. Um, <laughs> it was a book that was really about like, cod, it was called like Cod, the biography of the fish that changed the world. It was really about Cod. Michael is like rolling. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> so, um, so this is a book about Cod. Yeah, so I, cod. I would mildly recommend the Cod book. It was kind of interesting. But like um, the one recently that I'm reading is now a book. It's about rust. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. <laughs> it's, called, it's called Rust, the Longest War. And it is about um, basically, you know, the process of rust i guess um and how it's affected different things like there's a different chapter about you know different aspects of rust and metallurgy and things like that so it's pretty it's kind of a cool interesting thing there's a there's a whole chapter about the statue of liberty and how it was affected by rust and how it like basically almost collapsed so um so yeah, really, really interesting thing to read. That definitely made you seem smarter. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and, and I actually it really yeah. started to spark my interest there. Uh-huh. You know, Statue of Liberty. I'm like, all right, this that sounds did. pretty interesting. Yep. So. From Avengers to Rust. <laughs> yes. like, w- w- Eddie's journey. How are you going to follow that, Michael? Uh, I, I, not very well. I should have gone first. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what my lesson learned there is. Um, I, in, I guess instead of picking things that I'm reading exactly right now, I'm going to do maybe a couple of book selections from the best of over the past couple of years. I think amongst the product team, we actually spend you know quite a bit of time doing reading in areas that we think are going to be really relevant to what we're doing. Um, and I think one of the things that's been you know not always the easiest reading, but very informative and enjoyable is um, is really plunging into the world of behavioral economics and behavioral psychology and better understanding what our you know how our minds really work as a way of figuring out how to better design for what people really need. Um, and so I think we did uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which is like really the seminal work from someone who got the Nobel <laughs> Prize in economics from this. Maybe yeah. don't start with that yeah, one. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but you want to set aside some time to really make it through. Also, we did. A time in which you don't want to like you like for a month afterwards you don't need to make any decisions totally you like question every single little thing that you're doing it's like is this re-? yeah that's exactly what happened to me is afterwards i'm like why am i thinking that why did i decide that i'm probably biased what's informing that i can believe nothing the world's an illusion <laughs> only created by my mind um and then if you want like a little bit more of an accessible version i think uh predictably rational uh by dan Ariely uh is a good like practical set of tests and explanations um, maybe before you get to the sort of rich theory of thinking fast and slow. So I think those are really good. Uh, and then I think on another side, um, reading uh, uh, Sapiens and also Jared Diamond's The World Until Yesterday, uh, you know, which are both probably cover like the most amount of like prehistory and how human beings actually evolved has shaped a lot of my thinking um, in terms of better understanding like where our natural inclinations come from. And you think of if you think of humanity as being 200,000 years old, and then, you know, uh, maybe civilization as being about 10,000 years old, and then modern society, maybe being like one 200 years old, you start to see exactly why we're driven the way we are and where our like the kind of stimuli our brains are really reacting to. And so understanding where we've come from, um, and why and why we've evolved the way we have under what pressures and how human society has developed. Um, that's really changed a lot of my thinking about, you know, how to view uh, like how to view all of humanity. So if you wonder, so, so I, I'm trying to go really <laughs> yeah. high end, trying yeah. to understand our mind, get possible. inside our minds, and then understanding all of humanity. Those are the keys. <laughs> so I feel like my picks. I've got to have a book, or else I'm like really missing out here. <laughs> or go like really counterculture. <laughs> or go to this. yeah, counterculture. I yeah. Could, but I do actually have a pick for a book that I just finished reading, uh, which is "Quiet: The Power of Introverts uh, uh. in a World That Can't Stop Talking," which is great. Um, it really talks about 
how undervalued introverts mm. are and, and kind of talks about how we can work better to foster better relationships for introverts and make sure that we're hearing their ideas and really speaks to like companies and teams to really think about how to interact with an introvert versus an extrovert. Um, so I thought it was a really interesting book and a lot of really good tips in there to, to really think about. And then my second pick is uh, React Day New York is a conference. Uh, I believe it's the first time they're doing it. I'm speaking at it, so it's a selfish <laughs> plug. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? It's been a while since I've done a conference in New York, so I'm excited. Uh, that one's in September. It's actually Friday the 13th in September. So, you know, it's got to be good at that point. Yeah. So. And, and I will be talking about A-B testing. Mm-hmm. All right. So, nice. Yeah. Before we end the episode, I want to thank Michael, Kathy, and Eddie for joining us. It was a really pleasure having you on here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, You're fun. welcome. Where can people get in touch with you? Uh, let's see. So my Twitter handle is at mspiegelman. So you can reach me there or on LinkedIn, which many people seem to be able to find me on. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Kathy Conk. That's Kathy with a C. Uh, I live in a post-Twitter world, I only, <laughs> yeah. so um, I, I guess I'll be boring. You can just find me on LinkedIn. It's Eddie, E-D-D-Y, Woo. I don't think there's any others um, who, work, who, work, who work in Netflix, at least. Um, so, uh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to Front End Happy Hour podcast on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. And you can follow us on Twitter at Front End HH. Any last words? feel really dumb that I picked ramen and everybody else picked these like yeah. super intelligent books and I'm like ramen is tasty uh, I don't know it kind of made me want to try this ramen so oh, yeah. like you had, it seems much lower commitment than yeah. reading you know Nobel Prize economics uh-huh. books <laughs>